This is Series T, where we find the greatest entrepreneurs and investors in the world and force them to have tea with us live on air. I'm Imad Akun, founder and CEO of Mercury. And today we're having tea with Kevin Hartz, co-founder and chairman of Eventbrite. He's an early investor in startups like PayPal, Airbnb, Pinterest, and Mercury. Uh, most recently, he's founded ASTAR, a newly listed SPAC, special acquisition company, special purpose acquisition company, which raised 200 million to acquire and take public attacks on. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Kevin. Thanks so much, Iman. And, and I'm a very proud investor in Mercury. It's uh, an incredible service and, and uh, really in the, such the early innings uh, of, of exciting growth ahead. <laughs> thanks for your support. Uh, so you're kind of unusual in that like you're an entrepreneur, you've you know, taken the company public. Obviously, you've been an early stage investor, but you're not a late stage VC or like a kind of PE person. How did you... What was your journey from like learning about SPAC to like, you know, launching A-Star and I guess A1? Uh, how did that happen? It's a great question. I, you know, I've been involved in, in two companies I've founded that have, have been out in the public markets, a remittance business, helping uh, immigrants send money to their families around the world called Zoom, X-O-O-M. Uh, and then Eventbrite, uh, which uh, Julia, the current CEO and my wife, uh, a business we co-founded with our third partner, Renault public in September of 2018. And uh, being in the public markets is is actually a great place to be. I think there's this uh, conventional wisdom or conventional thinking that says never go public, stay private. And really being out in the public markets was, has been a great experience for both companies. Um, Zoom was eventually acquired by PayPal in 2015, but um, the, the public markets really helped build a muscle uh, to that, that can atrophy often, or I find atrophying in round after round of private financing, which you know I went through myself as as a founder. Um, in terms of how did I go from early stage investor to a two hundred million dollar vehicle, and in a, in a SPAC is simply taking public IPOing a, a company with two hundred million in trust, and that company we're looking for a partner. In, in the private side to which will subsume that and take that capital and, and establish itself as that primary entity as a public company. Uh, so after that, it's no different than an IPO or direct listing. You've, you're, the finished product is a public uh, and a wonderfully enduring public company. We're looking for enduring businesses that are going to be around from, for 10 years. Uh, or we want to hold stock in for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, not that we want to flip six months after, which had been one of the critiques of SPACs. What was your journey? Like you, like, was it Shamat that like made you think about like, let's do a SPAC? Like how did, what was your like starting point to like really start like thinking about like SPACs as like a good like thing for you to do? Well, I think if you spoke to Chamath, he would probably say he invented the whole category. Uh, no, I'm kidding. So Chamath's a very bright person, uh, uh, known pretty well. And, and uh, he, he was truly, or he is truly an innovator and um, coming first to this market. But uh, I, I think my challenge had been, and I was actually on a, a panel a number of years back, I think in 2012, where we talked about, do you stay private or do you go public? And I thought it, it was really nuts that companies were staying private for so long. And that it, it's really a kind of diversion from where, we, where the status quo was 15, 20 years ago. We have a four-year vesting in, um, on on shares, and you, you know you're all familiar as founders and of your companies that there's a four-year vest on on your team members and even yourself. 
And that four-year vest was the amount of time you're supposed to be a private company uh, before going public. So the average was four years. Um, I think it was Amazon that, that was founded in 93 and maybe went public in, in 96 or so. But, you know, I, I think it was three or four years after its inception. Uh, and then there's this conventional, conventional thinking that says you can't be a, a long-term company. And Amazon went public at a $500 million market cap selling books and look where it is now. So that inspiration of like being out in the public markets competing has always been there. Um, and the, the market is moving now back that way, and we see the, see the tailwinds. Okay, so you like saw these tailwinds, then how did you like go, okay, I'm going to do a spec? Like, what was your, like, I understand the rationale, but what was like your personal decision that, like, you know, you want to go after like this thing as like the next like thing that you do? Well, I'm, I'm supposed to tell you how difficult and arduous it is and warn people from doing it, but to be honest and against my own best interest, it was very simple to get up and running. So there's uh, we had a ragtag team of four of us, um, Laura, Spike, and Troy. And Troy and I are really the two that are working on this full time. We had our org meeting, which is in you know kind of public market speak, the first meeting with uh, your financial advisor, your bank, on June 18th. We retained uh, Goodwin that day. Uh, Goodwin, our law firm. Uh, we worked with Goldman Sachs, so part of the legitimization of SPACs is getting uh, is is having the the big um, prominent banks like Goldman and Morgan Stanley backing these deals. And then uh, we filed our confidential filing on on uh, the early July, the first of July. Our comments came back from the SEC at the end of July, so the government really held things back the most. Our filing was flipped public uh, on. August 2nd and followed by that we had you know a couple weeks uh, required before we could do our roadshow we did our roadshow in one day uh, all via zoom and the company was public on August 18th so 60 days uh, from from zero to a public entity I won't call it a I mean it is technically a company but it's look it's 200 million dollars in in a trust account and we this is the easy work the hard work is finding a great company and the hard work is building a great company is all you're doing out there um, so that you can be part of the public markets in, in the future if you choose that direction. That's absolutely insane that you did in 60 days. Uh, I mean, that's obviously after you built up all of this network that like you felt confident that you could get that 200 million in like a relatively quick fashion from institutional investors. Well, we, we, I don't like to sleep very often, so it was a lot of fun though. I'm sure that helps. And then this company, well, the SPAC has like 200 million. Uh, and then how it works is it can target up to like 5x valuation a company, like it can target a billion dollar company. Is that is that roughly the bound? That is. Um, so we're, we chose 200 million and we intentionally chose that money because, or that amount, because we want to reach companies. It's usually, yeah, that 5x, four to, to six range. And then we both made the cardinal sin that I've been trying to correct. And that's not to use the term target. It sounds like... Uh, one is an assassin. Uh, we're looking for a partner company, and you know we're we're not out there to hunt big game or do any of these things. We're out there to find a company that we have a great deal of respect and admiration before, and be a quiet partner to help bring them into the public markets. Got it. And then we can also, sorry to interrupt, Imad, but we yeah. can also add what's called a pipe, uh, private investment in a, a public entity, and actually bring in more capital. So. If a company needs 500 million, we can add 300 million via a pipe. And then 
not to go into too much complexity, but the cost of capital is much lower when you raise a pipe. It's less than 3% versus the 7.5% of a traditional IPO. Did you have to pay the 7.5% for the SPAC as well? Like the 200 million had a uh, the economics are a little more complex, but they're actually higher. And it's one of the, the things that why SPACs are, why now with SPACs is because the economics are coming more in line before they were very egregious economics. And you're seeing what's called the promote. It's kind of like a venture carry compress. And then we also, there's this warrant coverage that we were, uh, because we were able to be oversubscribed with a relatively small um, $200 million vehicle we were able to push down the warrant coverage to a quarter. And so these are all the things that a company that's thinking about taking their company public um, should look at closely. Uh, and, and again, against my own best interest. I want to dive into like why you think a company should go public earlier in their life. And like, I want to get like pretty specific on it. So like, here's the reasons why I think they shouldn't. And you could tell me like why they don't matter or maybe they do. Uh, number one, I feel like there's like a fixed cost to being a public company. Like you need to have like, you know, CFO and like there's a whole, you need to be audited. So there's a whole like fixed cost component. Is that just not that significant a cost? Like what is that kind of fixed cost of being a public company? You know, honestly, um, very few people have asked that question, but you're right. There is a fixed cost of the filings uh, and, you know, this, this overhead. Uh, it's, it's um, it, it breeds a certain amount of discipline, though, to have audited financials, to have one's house in order, and um, there is a cost of capital. To, there is a cost to it, but when you outweigh when you when you weigh it against um, the benefits of being public, of again, how you're you're in effect open sourcing your company and getting all this great feedback from investors. You're um, I, much more competitive and nimble. Um, in, in how you act, I think that vastly outweighs, um, you know, those, those fees, those New York Stock Exchange fees, or that are relatively small in comparison to these companies. Okay, second thing is, like, if, you're, if your performance, like, if you're still launching new things, your quarterly performance is, like, maybe not that predictable, uh, do you want to be past that phase where you have, like, I don't know, maybe two years of, like, very predictable quarterly performance and growth? before you think about being public? We're talking to companies with wildly unpredictable quarterly numbers because they're doing so well. So yeah. if your numbers are up and to the right, uh, that's um, a very exciting That's a very exciting business that public markets want to see. Um, and then there is just day in and day out of, of building a company and the vision in the, the notes that you give or the, the message that, when a shareholder understands, truly understands a business, that they're looking not how a company undulates and you know quarter in quarter out, but where it's going to be um, ten years out. And so you look for those kind of lockbox investors. We've had the good fortune of having a number of them in Eventbrite, like a Bailey Gifford or so on. Um, you know these these long term investors. Uh, so so I think there's um, a misnomer of like having to you know, that that everything has to be perfectly orchestrated. If you have a, a growing business, there's always a pattern to that in there. Okay, that's reasonable. And then I guess like a third point is, I mean, I guess there's kind of two versions of this point. Like number one is like, do you want your employees to be looking at kind of this stock ticker every day and like having their 
I don't know, they, like maybe livelihood or emotions like tied to like whether the stock's going up or down, like on a daily basis? Is, or do you think like you can, if you have a good culture, you can manage that out? You know, I, I forget the Eventbrite stock price most days. Um, so it's, it's not top of mind. You know, it's, it's uh, fun to watch the first couple weeks, but then, you know, you know where value is being created and that's inside the walls of, of the business. And what's exciting is continuing to do what one does and that's hit these great milestones, build a business like you're, you're doing it at Mercury and, and see more customers making them happy. And the, the stock price, you know, is, is really a distraction at, at that, uh, you know, from, from that perspective. And then I guess like the last point, which I don't love this point, uh, but I have heard it made is, uh, you know, once you're public, the early employees, the entrepreneur, the founders, whatever, have like liquidity and like maybe they're not as passionate about like kind of, you know, working because like you know, now they're rich people and they can just like chill out or something. Well, I would argue that it's just the other way around that, you know, there's an exhilaration in a, well, I, I don't want to tie it around money, I guess is is where I would go with this is that you know, we're all looking, you've built a team of great missionaries that are innovating on on banking, on financial services. And um, so if somebody's there to just uh, call it, phone it in, uh, they're, they're really um, not the right uh, employee for, for a company. So, uh, and then you look at these great companies that have been in the public markets uh, for decades from very small numbers, again, the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles, and so on. And you see uh, Facebooks and so on, and you see very high performance cultures. So it's it's really indistinct. It really comes from the leadership and in the hiring that's most important. I think that if you have um, uh, you know somebody kind of uh, taking it easier, writing uh, just kind of sitting back, then you've got more fundamental problems with your culture. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there was like a temporary time period, and maybe this was like partly led by SoftBank, where valuations were better in the private market than public market. And again, like, do you think that's ended because like the vision fund is like kind of finished now? That, that is part of the, uh, the, the change on the macro level is that it was stay private forever, take as much capital as you can, you'll beat, uh, you'll win in a capital battle. But what we found are there are these new emerging nimble companies that were, that didn't overraise, um, and they're performing quite well. Um, you know, I think of maybe Notion and Figma that baked for a number of years and and did that with very little capital, uh, and and now kind of enjoy the fruits of that. And uh, I think they should be out in the public markets, but uh, they'll be out, I'm sure, soon enough. Uh, in contrast, that to some of these companies, we were being the kind of granddaddy example where. It was fundamentally a, a great business, and then they overcapitalized to an excessive amount, and they started, uh, you know, ex- exhibiting all sorts of bizarre behaviors of burning capital, um, strange acquisitions, uh, crazy facilities, and in that, um, you know, actually bred their downfall. So companies, most companies, don't uh, die of starvation; they die of indigestion, and um, the best way to get fit is to be out in the public markets. Is there a revenue number where like you think an entrepreneur should be considering it? Like I heard Jamal say like 50 million is the revenue number where like people should be thinking about kind of going public. Is that a 
foundry like is that think? come off or me but uh no i um i didn't say it recently we we uh 50 million in triple digit growth is that number um in in my perspective that's where a company has you know generally uh a product that's scaling very fast if you look at you know a um in airbnb or or other that has you know um a business where you know you have guests and hosts and a very simple transaction and transaction fee uh, that has carried it to many billions in revenues today. Uh, mm-hmm. But that company could have been out uh, that early, um, and I I think that would have been a, a phenomenal outcome. So fifty million high margin uh, is what we look for, triple digit growth, uh, and and that can is moving into a big market with a key differentiation. Of course, if you're a founder out there, you always want to be building a business, you know, with having the best team, a big market and a clear competitive advantage being unique in a market. I think there's been like 80 or more SPACs this year. You might have a more precise number. Uh, if you're a founder of a company that's in the right ballpark and you're considering uh, SPACs, how do you think you should view like different people running SPACs? Like how, like what's the process you should use to pick like the SPAC that you go public with? Well, we're, we're investors and we're in, in each um, investment firm, just as on the growth side, uh, you know, you'll, um, and, and even on the early stage side, each, each investor, each firm has its own uh, culture values. Um, in a lot of the SPACs, the, the values are lacking <laughs> and, and that's been an issue. Um, but you're starting to see really great operators. We put ourselves, we think of ourselves as, as operators, as much as investors. We've been in, we've walked in the shoes of, of founders. We've been there on that side of the table. We know the, the tech ecosystem. We have a certain size of SPAC and, and you know, that we're not looking over our shoulder. We're really just thinking about um, finding a great partner. Um, now, every growth fund, you know, that makes 12, 20, investments a year has the same issue. There's a lot of growth funds out there. They're making, um, you know, a dozen or plus investments a year. And you look at that and, and that's a lot more inventory than there are of, of SPACs out there. So I think we're just getting started. We welcome more into the market uh, and there's, there's so much opportunity. So you think if you're an entrepreneur and you're judging a SPAC, it's very similar to how you judge a growth VC. It's like you look at the people you're like, do, do you want this person on your board and like all of these kind of like similar decision making process? Precisely. Our, our values are, um, you know, hard work, founder, CEO centricity. We won't take a board seat if, if, uh, unless we're asked to do it, we won't, we're not going to switch out a CEO certainly, um, that you see in some of these private equity, um, you know, deal SPACs that intend to rip and replace, um, you know, teams. We're uh, we're really just in, entirely focused on um, finding a great team, and they know how to build their business. Uh, but we're certainly here to help in any way. When you compare it to alternatives, right? Like, there's obviously like the IPO, and that's got a roadshow. And like, I kind of understand like the reasons people would choose a SPAC over like a traditional IPO. But now there's direct listings, and I think there was a the new thing where you can have a direct listing and have an auction uh, with it. If you are ready to like go public, uh, like why should an entrepreneur choose a SPAC over like one of these other options? Yeah, it's that's a great question. That's that's the right question. 
a, a SPAC isn't necessarily a replacement for all this. It's, it's another great option and each has its own characteristics. Uh, you know, I've had a great experience with two IPOs and, and um, they were a lot of fun. There were a lot of hard work. You're very restricted in what you can say uh, to the market versus what you can um, say and publish in an S4 and, and the time you can spend uh, with investors in a SPAC um, is, is much superior to the kind of quick uh, roadshow that's put on uh, that a CEO has to go through or that a CF, CEO and CFO go through and can only give very limited information. Uh, a direct listing is is all secondary. So if uh, there's now this proposal for secondary and a, a primary, um, a, a traditional IPO is all primary. Uh, a, a SPAC can be primary and secondary. So there's um, just a wealth of different options, and you can always, one can always take an, another private round. So if you were to compare like a, a direct listing where you can take a primary and a secondary, or a SPAC where you can take a primary and secondary, why would you choose one or the other? Well, a direct listing um, generally doesn't raise money. If you if if you do, uh, there's a lot of complexity and in, in time. Uh, you know, it, I think it took Spotify a year um, to do a direct listing. It it is still a more exotic, um, you know, kind of animal. It's itself. Um, it, it's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, there are more companies and more doing that, but um, the the nitty gritty of of the trade-offs, you know, looking at the cost of capital, um, setting price. The the other advantage of a SPAC is that you can you can come to a, a very efficient price uh, versus in a traditional IPO being, um, you know, kind of negotiated last minute um, with your bankers and investors. Um, so each does have a different flavor. In a SPAC, the price is set by like the like the SPAC lead is like buying you effectively. Well, you're merging, but like they're setting the, like it's a negotiation to set the price. It's um, much more of the company setting the price. You certainly don't want to overprice excessively your business, but you really set the price. You have that autonomy to do it. Um, In our perspective is that we just care where the company is in five to 10 years. Um, now we don't want anything to trade down, and 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 I think the company is rational and in, in terms of of where to set a good price is, you know, in our discussion with partners, th- that that's been a very attractive aspect of it. I see. So it's not like a like normally when you do a VC growth round, you want to get the highest price possible. But the dynamics are like not like that because it's going to be public afterwards. They don't want to overshoot on price and um, have like a correction in the public markets. That, that's uh, a great point. Do you think at all there's like an adverse selection for people who are willing to do SPACs? Like is there, would companies that are doing better stay private longer or take like another route? Or or you think like, yeah, it's really just an option and you see like good companies doing it. I mean, so far we've had like some great companies do the SPAC route. So I, I don't know if you've got a different opinion on that. Well, those are two the the two main points today are the cost of capital uh which you know is coming down and will come in line be amazonified and the second is the um kind of reticent the um the historical negative perspective of SPACs and both of those are changing in rapid real time you know you're seeing Reed Hoffman you're seeing 
Mark Stodd from Dragoneer entering the market. You're seeing Mickey Malka from Rivet Capital. And these are excellent, excellent um, operators and, and investors that really invest in the best companies in the, on the planet. And you're, you're, so you're seeing in real time uh, the, the quality changing from when it was these kind of boiler room deals uh, a long time ago. So what was, what was the actual like thing that changed that like made SPACs interesting again? Like, was there like a regulatory change or something like that? Or was it just like, because it seems like a lot of these things have existed for many years. Uh, I kind of like, liken it to the internet or Bitcoin. You know, those are technological technological phenomenon, um, but this is a financial vehicle, like this is a financial innovation that uh, just had to get in line. I think there are a number of interesting Thoughts I've had, you know, the the fact that we could go through and be public so quickly um, as a vehicle, uh, which was facilitated by uh, Eric at Zoom, um, you know, so being able to do your roadshow all virtually instead of traveling around the country uh, is is one key aspect. Or uh, the team over at DocuSign being able to, or HelloSign as well, uh, being able to. Uh, go through and sign, you know, I signed hundreds of documents and to be able to do that, uh, you know, virtually uh, was key. So I, I think there was an aspect of, of COVID accelerating the, the trend um, as we've seen this acceleration into the future. And it's been the innovation economy that helped uh, buffer this in, but it's almost like any phenomenon. There's a technological S curve uh, where you see, um, you know, for example, uh, commercial banking is now going hitting its uh, S curve with Mercury, uh, and it's going to grow at a torrid and it's growing at a torrid pace. Um, similarly, uh, you know, some things like the radio took decades to to reach 100% penetration. Venture capital took decades to mainstream. Um, y Combinator took you know maybe a decade to become this financial vehicle at the formation stages to really aid and buffer companies. And now we see SPACs at the uh, late stage at the, uh, as a vehicle uh, that's emerged very quickly to go public with all these different tailwinds aforementioned. Is there also like, I feel like people are like rushing to go public right now. Is there is there some sort of like, I don't know, like potentially irrational panic that people think that the IPO markets are going to close if they don't act quickly and that's also like fueling SPACs? Well, it's, it's, there's a certain rationality to it. I, I mean, I think first, every company we've seen go public, you know, in the traditional IPO window, especially after Labor Day, which is one of these windows that open up and you see a rush of companies. We did that in September of 18 with Ventbrite, where um, there were kind of a slew of companies that came out during a, a, a window. And this is, by the way, another advantage yet to be mentioned that, that uh, a SPAC is already in the public market. So rain or shine, you can get out there um, with a SPAC vehicle. But there has been a rush. You saw, you know, Snowflake and Asana and Palantir and all these businesses um, really um, go for this uh, because of this window. If that window closes, there's concerns of the election and so on. I don't know what's going to happen with the market. I, the one thing I've proven is I know nothing about uh, the macro environment. And and so, um, you, you know, again, a SPAC can be this consistent option that's that's always there. Do you think a SPAC actually like performs better in the down market in the sense that like presumably it's you know cheaper to like merge with companies and uh, like then outside the down market they'll do well? 
that that's the presumption. Um, but there's great companies that should be in the public markets at any period of time. And finding those companies, um, you know, I had the good fortune of being a seed investor in PayPal. And it was the first tech company, uh, I believe it was um, February of 2002, it was the, the first tech company to go public after 9-11 and was a immense success. Uh, so, so there's really no bad time to go public with a great company. I think you touched on this earlier, but so let's just like, just for simple maths, like you, know, you have a $200 million uh, SPAC. I think my company's worth a billion dollars. After I go public with you, I would have presumably $1.2 billion company. Like I'll have $200 million in, in my bank. Uh, what are the other costs involved? Like, is there, is there some percentage of the equity that is not part of that equation and it goes to kind of you as That's a spec? There's, there's a sponsor promote um, yeah. that comes out of that. There's warrant coverage that's um, mildly dilutive, but still dilutive. Those warrants have come down in, in you know, there used to be one-to-one warrant uh, to unit of, of SPAC share um, and they've come down. We were one of, we were the first to launch it, our, our first SPAC at a quarter warrant, which, which is extremely low. Um, so those are the, the real sponsor. The, so there's a, what was the first thing called? Something promote. It's called the promote. It's, it's similar okay. to carry in a venture fund. Okay. So what, is, what is the promote for a one? The promote is, uh, essentially 20% of, uh, the, the $200 million is okay. as it's published, but it's negotiable. So in theory, like uh, after I go public with you, I'm going to have to pay 40 million to you, which is the promote and a quarter of the percent. And when I say you, I mean like the organization, A-Star, I guess. That's the name of the organization. Yeah. The warrant coverage is on, on the shares. Um, and, and it's actually um, 20% uh, post money. So 50 million. Okay. Got it. Interesting. So that's actually not that, not that bad, right? That's like pretty reasonable to pay that and go public at the end. We think so. Um, we think it's a little high. Um, and yeah. we're, we intend to bring it down when meeting a company. And then, you know, Mickey Malka had um, a great idea of change of, of modifying the terms in a favorable way where if, if there's downside, um, which again is kind of crazy to us that if in a venture fund that if you uh, lose half the investor's money, you would never make a carry, but in a, in a SPAC you, you do. Um, so Mickey has reduced his promote to 10% in downside. Um, but then in, in certain milestones, it's, it actually raises. Interesting. Is it, it feels like there's also like a little bit of an arbitrage that you've already done the roadshow, you've already collected the money and like the company doesn't have to go do their own roadshow and collect the money, right? Like you've kind of, you've people have entrusted you with this money and it's like ready to go kind of thing. That's correct. And from, you know, a couple week diligent period in assigning of a an LOI, uh, that deal can be announced in 30 days, um, which we've seen time and time again. So it's not, it's, 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 it's a fast pace, but it's um, a realistic pace. And then 30 days later, you're submitting all your papers, uh, your final um, S4 to the SEC uh, for, for review. So how many of these are you going to do? Is this 
kind of one and you're going to see what it's like or is there a plan to do many next year? The, the plan is to build a franchise like a Sequoia or Benchmark. We've, of course, have to be successful in our first. So we're very focused on on that. But um, we're, we're very excited to help innovate and get companies public sooner. And we, we hope to be in this for the long term. But what, like, what is it realistic that like, I guess your mouth's got like three going right now. Uh, is there like a number where, you know, you're like, okay, up to 10 a year is like a good number for like a franchise that's doing specs? Well, uh, the storied venture funds are, you know, in their 15, 18, 20th funds with thousands of investments and, you know, sometimes 100 IPOs. So uh, this this can, you know, we think they're real legs uh, that, it, uh, hope, that the goal for it is to outlast me. Is it also true that like once you're public, it's much easier to get like primary capital for the company? I've heard that from multiple sources. Is that one of the drivers that like, yeah, once you're public, you've got public price and it's easy to raise money? That's absolutely correct. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, we see that companies take round after round of diluted capital in the public markets. You have just so many different types of investors uh, and companies hit um, snags, Eventbrite, was massively impacted by COVID, and we had a, an emergency manner, um, you know, which Julia, the, the CEO, did quite brilliantly, raised three hundred million. And a growth investor is not going to uh, be the one that that makes this investment. And we were able to raise uh, in a very interesting debt structure along with the public convert, um, and we were able to do the public convert in a few days. The Debt financing um, with warrants in a few weeks, so it's it's incredible uh, the availability of capital and different types of capital. Um, of course, you never want it to be in the situation that we were in with the COVID disaster. I would say, you know, in the case of live event ticketing, Julia and Eventbrite was harder hit than anyone out there. Maybe uh, not as hard hit as cruise lines, but in that category, and um, the comeback she's staging is is brilliant, but. I don't think uh, we would have been in business if we'd been a private company to, and had to find that capital. I guess on the later stages, we have SPACs. On the early stage, we have rolling funds. How do you see, I guess, do those interact? Is, is, yeah. is there more innovation that you're seeing like across this kind of funding spectrum that, that you think is like interesting to think about? Well, I think it's interesting that we are starting to see venture funds with, with SPACs and I think, you know, in our conversations, we had a lot of conversation with a lot of outreach from venture funds that wanted to learn more. And, you know, we, we want to encourage um, this. We, we want this to open for more business and legitimize further. So we, uh, we're encouraging venture funds to enter this market. And, you know, as you saw from Dragoneer, Dragoneer is a public and private market investor uh, and now is, is a SPAC investor. Um, you know, as as we encourage more, and we'll, we think many more are going to enter the market as uh, it's as a very similar but uh, product to what they're doing now, diligence finding great enduring growth businesses. Is there a conflict when a VC does it? Because are they going to be kind of spiking the existing portfolio which they already have a investment with? There's not an SEC violation. There's not an ethical violation. Um, it's just like a follow-on round. Now, what you can't do in a SPAC is have a partner company already picked out and agreed upon before. Um, oh. I, but there's, 
you know, interestingly, no conflict um, whatsoever. You see it in private equity where um, a firm will own a, a, a private company, a private equity firm, and then will take it public. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I, th- I think it's a great um, mechanism. Um, you also see LPs, by the way, that are um, tired of such long, you know, 10 plus year periods uh, to liquidity. It's certainly been a bountiful um, great time to be in the venture in the LP business, but the the timeline to liquidity is so long that I think you'll see LPs, limited partners, the the investors in the investment uh, venture funds actually pushing uh, or, or actually very in favor of of the SPAC direction. So you think more of these kind of late stage growth VCs will be entering this kind of SPAC uh, like option. Behind the scenes, I hear uh, quite a bit of, of, of discussion about it. And, and again, you're already seeing it happen. Oh, that's super interesting. Is there something limiting SPACs, like from a regulatory perspective or technology perspective? Like, is there something that could improve that would like make them even better? Like, for example, why can't they go after a $10 billion company? Well, we, we, can, um, we, we could reach a $10 billion company with a pipe. So if a company wanted to raise a billion dollars, we could... Uh, raise an $800 million pipe where you're paying a 3%, less than 3% cost of capital. And that's a brilliant outcome for a company. And by the way, I don't, you know, we're all familiar with the IPO pop and the primary side. That's incredibly dilutive, um, far more than any sponsor promote that we discussed earlier. Um, and one of the reasons that direct listings raised uh, or is, is, you know, raised up in, in esteem and, and highlighted. And, and we think that the, the SPAC and the direct listing offer um, two different products. Um, really what we're focused on is bringing the promote in line. And uh, secondly, we're focused on um, just the reputational piece. I think those are the two most important aspects right now. Well, why would there not be a pop in a SPAC? Like that's, it's just as likely to pop, right? Well, there's, there's more of a, um, there, there's more thought and analysis in company led direction on, um, pricing. So if you're a first-time founder and CEO, you're going to be much more reliant and in, 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 in it just happens to be very last minute. Like the, you, you do the roadshow, um, you, you come down to this pricing meet, you, you have this pricing meeting and, and build your book and it, it just happens in, in rapid succession and it's not the best environment for price optimization. Okay. But like, didn't Virgin Galactic popped like 67% or something after they did the SPAC merger? Um, they, does happen. they did. And, you know, so, but that was much, that price was much more set by uh, that company. And, okay. uh, you know, rather than, um, rather yeah, than. Basically, it's, it's mostly like the person who's setting it changes and, and the incentives are better aligned. Like the company sets a price rather than the bank is setting the price and the bankers have like weird incentives. That's absolutely correct. This has been a super interesting conversation. I feel like I knew a lot about SPACs, but now I know way more. Feels like I have to launch one just as just for fun. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? That's to uh, choose not the highest price, but the uh, best investor and somebody that you're um, willing to be work with for a decade plus. Uh, we had the good fortune of working. Uh, with my two companies with Sequoia both times and rule up both, both times. And, and he's extraordinary. And he uh, really was a great guide for, for us and especially Julia, the, the CEO of Eventbrite through COVID and that decision 10 months ago or 10 months, 10 years ago, when, when we signed the series, a 
term sheet uh, was so important. We had a term sheet that was 2x the price, and we chose to work again with Sequoia, and uh, they're just uh, in, incredibly valuable. Great partner. Why weren't they willing to kind of up their price to match that 2x, or was the 2x like just someone throwing a crazy number out there? You know, the, the, the response to that is maybe, uh, maybe I'm a lousy negotiator. <laughs> the best response to it. <laughs> well, you've done okay. So, uh, what's a company or product that you're kind of excited about that, you know, whether new or, or not new, whether you've, you were well, like, oh, that's pretty cool. Come on. Um, <laughs> my new, this company I just invested in is called Sidekick. It's a YC company and it's a telepresence uh, device. And this yeah, is- yeah. Really I, I invested in it as well. Oh, oh my great. God, I love this company. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, this is Sidekick and it's always on and it's one of the most brilliant things. So Julia, uh, while she's my wife, she's the CEO of Eventbrite and I can, we can tap to talk at any time. And so it's for teams to get that sense of being there when you can't be there. And telepresence is uh, such a different model from what we're doing with Zoom or what uh, Alexa or others do. And I'm yeah. just such a big believer um, in, in uh, the future of telepresence and think this team is brilliantly uh, kind of hacked in, uh, together a great solution that I've been using nonstop for since I got it a few weeks ago. So it's funny when I was like thinking about ideas for my startup, that was pretty much, I mean, I don't know exactly this feature set, but it was pretty much my second best idea for startups instead of Mercury. I'm still happy I did Mercury, but I also invested in Sidekick. So well, we're, we're both uh, proud investors. Great <laughs> as, as always, it's really important to have a great team behind it. All right. This, this was awesome, Kevin. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Do you, if someone wants to kind of get in touch with you or be involved with A-Style, like what's the best way they can do that? Well, we are looking for, uh, we're looking for help. Like there's, again, just two of us full-time and two part-time. And we're looking for very energetic, um, intellectually curious folks to help us out. Uh, you can reach me at kevin at heartsfamily.co uh, is probably the, the best way to reach me. Okay, awesome. Cool. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Thank you. Great to see you, Ahmad.